0: from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and this is Brittany Cooper. Hello, Professor Cooper. Yes. Mm -hmm. Hi, it's Guy Raz here. How are you? Hi. You are indeed, as you say in your talk, always on time and and in fact early.
4: Yes, trying to be
0: (laughs) always. (laughs) Brittany's a professor.
4: Yes, so I'm associate professor of women's and gender
0: studies and Africana studies at Rutgers University. And Brittany's sense of being on time was something her mom taught her pretty early on.
4: Well, my mom uh, worked as a secretary, and so she was working her way up through this company, and so she was on very regimented time. And part of uh, what she was trying to do was create a pathway into the middle class. And so that meant showing up and being professional. It meant speaking great corporate English uh, in many cases. And it had everything to do with the importance of professionalization and trying to create a pathway because we're working class uh, black family from very modest roots. And she wanted more for herself, and she was a single mom with only a high school education at the time. And so these were some of the markers of trying to have class mobility. And so they are very small ways to think about it, but in my educational context that we're predominantly white, we couldn't be late because we were trying to project a sense of excellence and that we were about business, uh, that I should be taken seriously as a student and that she should be taken seriously as
0: a parent. And this idea that time could be connected to something bigger, something intangible, was actually the focus of a talk Brittany gave back in 2016.
4: What if I told you that time has a race? A race in the contemporary way that we understand race in
0: the United States. Here's more from Brittany Cooper on the TED stage.
4: Typically, we talk about race in terms of black and white issues. In the African-American communities from which I come, we have a long-standing, multi-generational joke about what we call CP time, or colored people's time. Now, we no longer refer to African-Americans as colored, but this long-standing joke about our perpetual lateness to church, to cookouts, to family events, and even to our own funerals remains. I personally am a stickler for time. It's almost as if my mother, when I was growing up, said, we will not be those Black people. So we typically arrive to events 30 minutes early. But today, I want to talk to you more about the political nature of time. For if time had a race, it would be white. White people own time.
0: Can you explain what you mean that that time has a race? Yes.
4: Yes. So when I say time has a race, I'm saying that the way that we position ourselves in relationship to time comes out of histories of European and Western thought. And a lot of the way that we talk about time really finds its roots in the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so prior to that, we would talk about time as merely passing the time. Mm-hmm. After the Industrial Revolution, suddenly we begin to talk about time as spending time. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes something that is tethered to a monetary value. So when we think about hourly wage, we now talk about time in terms of wasting time or spending time. And that's a really different understanding of time than, you know, like seasonal time hmm. or time that is sort of merely passing. Uh, and so I wanted to think about what does it mean if people are considered folks who Largely are not impacting the flow of things, right? Uh, which is often a racialized idea. So when we think about black and brown peoples around the world, uh, in Western frameworks, there is a way that black and brown people are seen as a lag on social progress. So they are seen as holding back the, you know, power of the West to modernize <laughs> the world. And that becomes the pretext often to do all manner of violence. Time has a history, and so do Black people. But we treat time as though it is timeless, as though it has always been this way, as though it doesn't have a political history bound up with the plunder of indigenous lands, the genocide of indigenous people, and the stealing of Africans from their homeland. When white male European philosophers first thought to conceptualize time and history, one famously declared, Africa is no historical part of the world. He was essentially saying that Africans were people outside of history who had had no impact on time or the march of progress. This idea that black people have had no impact on history is one of the foundational ideas of white supremacy. It's the reason that Carter G. Woodson created Negro History Week in 1926. It's the reason that we continue to celebrate Black History Month in the U.S. every February. Now, We also see this idea that Black people are people, either alternately outside the bounds of time or stuck in the past, in a scenario where, much as I'm doing right now, a Black person stands up and insists that racism still matters, and a person, usually white, says to them, why are you stuck in the past? Why can't you move on? We have a Black president. We're past all that.
0: I wonder whether that question or those questions are another, it's almost as if the person either implicitly or not is sort of saying, I'm not interested in honoring or acknowledging your story.
4: Right. Absolutely. Um, You know, the more generous thing that I can say is that part of what exposing these operations of time should allow us to think about is that we don't all have the same timescapes. And so, if you're white in the US context, typically you are taught that time is linear, mm. that every day is a progression beyond the past, that yeah. we are not today where we were 50 years ago. But if you are African American in this country, time doesn't exactly work that way. You are, you know, living often with the residue of past historical trauma. You are living in a present-day system that is filled with racial animus, which often is overlooked by many white Americans. And so you're also living with a sort of notion of a precarious future, that you can be, you know, it reminds me, um, in my book, Eloquent Rage, I write about the story of Sandra Bland, who was killed in 2015 after an encounter uh, with the police.
2: Hello, ma'am. What it takes to have control, the reason for your stop is you didn't fail. You failed to signal the lane change. But what was
4: most difficult for me was Sandra Bland uh, is pulled over and arrested well you can
0: step on out now
4: I don't have to step out of my car. Step out of the car. And she's driving into Prairie View A&M University uh, down in Texas, which is her alma mater. And so she can literally, like, the university is sort of right there.
2: Now step out or I will remove you. And she has
4: just gotten her dream job. And this was the whole purpose of this journey that she takes down from Chicago. And she is yanked out of that future um, through a police encounter that is so reminiscent of the past. Get out of the car!
5: I will light you You up. Get out. Now. Wow! Get out of the car! Before I fail, you're the signal, you doing all of this. Get fail. over
4: there! And it right. reminds me of the ways that past and presence and futures seemingly coexist uh, for African American folks. And so, in that way, time doesn't feel linear. It feels like the past, you know, past narratives of race that are rooted in violence and rooted in a lack of freedom. They feel like they can become our reality again at any moment. No! Stop it! And it's why sometimes when you talk to African-American folks, particularly young folks, you will see them say, well, things haven't changed very much. We're still not free. And that always irritates the liberal-minded. How can Mm. you say things have not changed much? We've had a Black president. You are not enslaved. But what they are saying is Mm. that the feeling that at any moment we could elect a white supremacist to the presidency again in 2016, as we did, or that the police could do harm to African-American citizens and do so with impunity reminds us and recalls for us histories that we have been told that we are past, but which we are still living.
1: What do you see? I don't know. I don't know what white people see, you know, when they look at Negro anymore. I do know very well, whatever he was looking at, it wasn't me.
0: It wasn't me. Racism isn't always obvious, but it can be found almost everywhere. In the language we use to describe certain groups. In the ways laws are written to protect those with power and in opportunities given or even held back. So today on the show, we're gonna explore the effects of everyday racism and how to confront it. And why one of the first steps towards defeating racism is to acknowledge its existence, both in the past and the present. Why do you think it's so difficult for Americans? And let's be frank, with for white Americans to talk about the past in a frank and empathetic way?
4: It's a great question. Um,
0: Maybe better for me to answer the question.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, look, I mean, I think that it is, a, you know, a certain form of opportunism. That Here is why it's hard to ha- for us to have any of these conversations about inequality in the country. Because I think that white Americans see themselves as people who work really hard, and they believe in the myth of meritocracy. We're all indoctrinated into this myth. It's Mm. the American myth, right? You come to this country, you work hard, and anything is possible for you. And so anyone who doesn't have the things that they say they want, they don't have them because they didn't work hard. And so then when you have to listen to people of color point out all the ways in which that isn't true, it disrupts a fundamental identity narrative um, for many white American folk about how they came to their prosperity. And really, it comes down to a very basic sense that what I think white Americans hear often in conversations about race is that we are saying to them, you are bad people, and everything you have, you don't deserve, as opposed to saying, we are all in this particular historical moment born into a set of conditions that are not of our own making. Our ancestors were negotiating these conditions, and your ancestors positions you to benefit greatly. And so that inability to sort of both take accountability for being beneficiaries of centuries of inequality and also to recognize that no one is commenting on your personal morality, but saying that America is about a system of justice. And if we're going to actually live up to our stated creed of liberty and equality and justice, then... We've got to think at a systemic level about how to do that, um, and that might mean some personal discomfort. I believe the future is what we make it. But first, we have to decide that time belongs to all of us. No, we don't all get equal time. But we can decide that the time that we do get is just and free. We can stop making your zip code the primary determinant of your lifespan. We can stop stealing learning time from Black children through excessive use of suspensions and expulsions. We can stop stealing time from Black people through long periods of incarceration for nonviolent crimes. The police can stop stealing time and Black lives through use of excessive force. I believe the future is what we make it, but we can't get there on colored people's time, or white time, or your time, or even, my time. It's our time. Ours.
0: You know, when I saw your talk, I, I walked away thinking that this was like an incredibly hopeful ending to, to your talk. And I wonder if you are, I mean, do, do you have that sense of hope that, that those conversations are possible, that, that the resetting of the narrative is possible?
4: Yes. I don't think that there's any other position but the hopeful position. You know, cynics uh, and pessimists bother me Hmm. because they assume that those of us who are hopeful don't have a factual grasp on history. But I absolutely do have a grasp. Like, I think a lot about how did enslaved people who spent their whole lives in enslavement, how did they come to an understanding of what freedom meant when they didn't have access to it? Our people are people who have hoped generations beyond them into a future. And so to say that I am unhopeful is to say that the sacrifices and the investments of 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 those who came before me and who gave their lives and who got up every day and toiled um, in unfavorable conditions for me to have this level of possibility, to, it is to say that they were fools. And I don't, I simply don't believe that. Hope is a high risk project, Mm. uh, but my people are high risk people. (laughs) Um, And so I think that it is a way to honor them. I think it is a way to make sure that the future looks like if I give up hope today, that means I stop fighting. Mm. And if I stop fighting and folks like me stop fighting, that means that we have given the future over to enemies of progress and we can't afford to do that. So if we actually think that the future can be what we want, then our job and our task in this moment is to keep fighting. That's literally the only way the story changes.
0: That's Brittany Cooper. She's an associate professor at Rutgers University and author of the book, Eloquent Rage. You can see Brittany's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about confronting racism... I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capterra. Everyone has that friend who's the first one to try things. When you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear it from someone who's been there, done that. Choosing the right software solution for your business is no different. Read over 750,000 reviews of products spanning over 700 categories of software to help you make an informed decision for your business on Capterra.com. Slash radio hour. Captera, software selection simplified. Thanks also to Trader Joe's, whose podcast Inside Trader Joe's takes you on a journey through fascinating food finds, astonishing culinary inventions, fresh approaches to classic dishes, new ways to prepare dinner, and everything you ever wanted to know about frozen food. And then some. You'll find new, innovative, astonishing, and fascinating episodes of Inside Trader Joe's wherever you get your podcasts. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram.
3: What does what you eat or don't eat say about who you are and where you fit in? It's the memories and the feelings of nostalgia that is what connects you to your family. It's not chicken or beef (laughs) or pork.
6: This is Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch. This week on the menu, food and family.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today... Ideas about confronting racism.
1: My name is Dr. Monique Morris. I am the founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute.
0: Monique's also an author and an educator, but when she was a student… Sixth grade is difficult for most young people. Monique did something that was kind of out of character, something that could have derailed her if her teachers had handled it differently, because she got into a fight. At school,
1: What I remember most about that fight was how frustrated I felt.
0: A boy who was taller and stronger had been taunting Monique for weeks. And that day, in PE class, he stepped on her shoe.
1: His refusal to apologize was such a tremendous trigger for me. And um, in hindsight, it was a reflection of uh, multiple things that were going on in my life at that time. So, filled with anger, I grabbed him and I threw him to the ground. I'd had some previous judo training.
0: Monique Morris continues her story from the TED stage.
1: Our fight lasted less than two minutes, but it was a perfect reflection of the hurricane that was building inside of me. As a young survivor of sexual assault and as a girl who was grappling with abandonment and exposure to violence in other spaces in my life, I was fighting him, But I was also fighting the men and boys that had assaulted my body and the culture that told me I had to be silent about it. A teacher broke up the fight, and my principal called me in her office, but she didn't say, Monique, what's wrong with you? She gave me a moment to collect my breath and asked, what happened? The educators working with me led with empathy. They knew me. They knew I loved to read. They knew I loved to draw. They knew I adored prints. And they used that information to help me understand why my actions and those of my classmates were disruptive to the learning community they were leading. They didn't place me on suspension. They didn't call the police. My fight didn't keep me from going to school the next day. It didn't keep me from graduating. It didn't keep me from teaching. You know, I think about that time as a critical moment in my own life and development, but it was certainly one of those incidents that had gone a different way, there could have been a radically different outcome, not just for me at that moment, but certainly for other things that happened in my life. But unfortunately, that's not a story that's shared by many black girls in the U.S. and around the world today. Black girls are seven times more likely than their white counterparts to experience one or more out-of-school suspensions, and they're nearly three times more likely than their white and Latinx counterparts to be referred to the juvenile court. A recent study by the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality partially explained why this disparity is taking place when they confirmed that black girls experience a specific type of age compression, where they're seen as more adult-like than their white peers. People perceive black girls to need less nurturing, less protection, to know more about sex and to be more independent than their white peers. The study also found that the perception disparity begins when girls are as young as five years old and that this perception and and the disparity increases over time uh, and peaks when girls are between the ages of 10 and 14.
0: So, as you said in your talk, black girls in the U.S. are disciplined more often than white girls. But... It's not that that they're acting out more, right? Is, Is it that administrators are more likely to punish them?
1: So oftentimes, you know, when we see the data reflect a disparity, you know, our inclination is to believe that they are in trouble more. But what we're finding is that their behaviors are interpreted as more problematic and the censure is immediate and harsher for them. This is not without consequence. Believing that a girl is older than she is can lead to harsher treatment, immediate censure when she makes a mistake and victim-blaming when she's harmed. It can also lead a girl to think that something is wrong with her, rather than the conditions in which she finds herself. Black girls are routinely seen as too loud, too aggressive, too angry, too visible. Qualities that are often measured in relation to non-black girls and which don't take into consideration what's going on in this girl's life or her cultural norms.
0: And does it affect even young girls, 8-, 9-, 10-year-old girls?
1: Oh, it affects girls as young as 5 or even you know preschool age wow. with wow. respect to suspensions. We see incidents where girls are as young as six and seven years old being arrested in school for having a tantrum or being handcuffed. Um, Adults are reading risk and threat in the bodies of very young black girls.
0: So when when a girl at the age of seven or eight is all of a sudden being disciplined for behavior that a child who is not black may not be disciplined for, what does that start to do to that little girl? What is that? How does that affect her self-image?
1: What happens is that they begin to feel alienated from the learning environment, and school becomes associated with part of the tapestry of harm in their lives rather than a place where they can go and be safe. And being punished for some of the things that you see other kids not necessarily punished for, having a phone, chewing gum, They start to feel singled out. They start to feel that there is an overtone of racial bias in their learning space. Um, It leads to what we call avoidance, uh, where they are more inclined to not want to go to school, to not participate in school. You know, young people begin to feel like this is just not a place where they want to be. The energy in the room shifts for them.
0: As as you know, kids have a strong sense of fairness and unfairness, right? Absolutely. That's not fair. That's right. That's not fair. They're pointed out right away. <laughs> and, and what you're talking about is not fair. Mm-hmm. A 10-year-old child, an 8-year-old, 5-year-old child knows that, internalizes that idea of fairness. That, I have to assume, that stays with them for life. I mean, that becomes the, the sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, it's interesting because for a
1: lot of the girls who end up in trouble, they are normed in many ways to respond to this injustice by speaking up and speaking out about it. But their act of speaking up and speaking out about it is then perceived as disruptive and sometimes combative, sometimes willfully defiant, um, and an actual violation of the law if there are disturbing schools laws in that jurisdiction. And so these girls who are speaking up and speaking out are then criminalized in some ways. We saw this in South Carolina, where the young woman had the incident with the school resource officer who tossed her body across the classroom. The girl who videotaped it was charged with disturbing schools, (laughs) right? She was actually charged with a crime for recording it because she dared to say, this is not fair. What are you doing to this girl, right? This is not what should be happening in our schools.
0: And presumably, you know, when these girls experience this kind of discipline and punishment, and when they conclude that there must be an issue of race involved... And and you've got the data. The data bears it out. They face a backlash of people saying, oh, every time you something happens, you're always throwing out racism or playing the race card or something like that. I have to assume that that's the response that they often get. Maybe you get with your research. Oh, definitely.
1: <laughs> Here's the thing about that. Um, this country has not reconciled its race problem. Hmm. When Black girls and boys say, this is because you see me differently, there's this denial in the mainstream that there is anything wrong, right? But it's deeply rooted in this idea that we have to get over a trauma that was never fully reconciled. Hmm. The historical trauma associated with race and discussions about racism in this country affects us all. But the thing to understand about historical trauma is it's a collective disenfranchised grief. And because we haven't had these kinds of conversations, we try to bury them. And burying something is the same as pushing it away, right? It doesn't resolve the issue. You have to confront these notions, confront these constructs, fully engage in this conversation, not just about Black girlhood and Black identities. We also have to have conversations about constructs of whiteness. What Mm. does that mean? Mm. Why does it have power in this society? Without our, you know, sort of intellectual, spiritual, emotional commitment to engaging in that hard work— We will always feel like whenever there is an incident of racial bias that the person who is victimized by this racial bias is the one who has the problem. It is, you know, one of those things where we have to continually engage in the reflection that is the actual hard work, because it's part of how we build a society that is going to have legitimate relationships that are not about, you know, something that is as superficial as denying a core part of who we are.
0: That's Monique Morris. She's president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute and the author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. You can hear Monique's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about confronting racism in all aspects of our lives, including sports.
5: Jack Johnson retains his heavyweight championship of the world.
6: Numerous historians have argued that in terms of race, sports has always been the great equalizer in this country. Jackie Robinson, for the plate
3: on his That's the voice
0: of Pat Ferrucci on the TED stage. Pat teaches journalism at the University of Colorado.
3: Althea Gibson of New York became the first of her race to win the title at Wimbledon. And if
0: you look at the number of African-Americans in sports today, you could very well think that the battle for racial equality, at least in the sports arena, has been won.
6: But that's not entirely accurate. Journalists and broadcasters consistently and constantly stereotype athletes by race through their word choices. Intelligence, background, motivation, physical strength, effort, leadership, right? These are all word choices that journalists make when they're talking about athletes. But they do so in a racialized manner.
5: The league's top workhorses. I'm one of the best league's natural talent I've, I've ever
0: seen.
3: Identify three freaks. Uh, in The, the guy moves like a, a dancing bear on the turf. A,
0: a great natural athlete. He's a very smart and as Pat points out, player. our sports language is racialized, whether we are aware of it or not.
6: So there's decades of research out there where basically people have sat down and coded the descriptors that journalists and broadcasters use to describe players. And again, so these descriptors, we'll call them stereotypes, tend not to be negative, right? They're very positive Attributes, whether we're talking about intelligence or effort or physical strength, whatever. But there's, if somebody was to use the word intelligent about a quarterback, it's almost definitely going to be about a white quarterback or why a quarterback uh, succeeds who's white. And um, yeah, there's really no debate about that. Let's take Cam Newton and Tom Brady as examples. Now, we can all agree Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever live, right? Ever, easy, yeah, no doubt about it, right? (laughs) But when Brady succeeds, journalists often talk about his intelligence or his effort. Now compare Cam Newton, guy won a national championship in college, played in a Super Bowl, won an MVP in the NFL. You'd think for a quarterback to do that, he'd have to be pretty damn smart and work really hard But when Newton succeeds, it's often about his physical strength or his natural talent. And that's the thing with athletes and stereotypes. If you're white, regardless of the sport, you're often talked about in terms of intelligence or effort or how great of a leader you are. If you're black, it's about physical strength, natural ability, or athleticism. The problem is, when we start to label people completely based upon their race, with no scientific evidence to back it up, we start to see race, which is entirely a social construct, as something that actually matters. This is what we call everyday racism, a sociological concept that describes the subtle ways that we treat people of divergent races differently. So you have
0: all these studies, studies that show Black and white athletes are described differently, but what effect does that have? Is that actually changing how audiences view athletes? Yeah, exactly. And so what we've done,
6: we, we get photos of anonymous athletes, people that nobody would know and that they've been pretested to be the same in terms of uh, what people label them as physical or intelligent or... Um, attractiveness all these things that could impact how people judge somebody right so we get them all on kind of an equal baseline with just the you know just random people doing that then we run experiments so what we do is for example one group will see a photo of a white athlete with a story underneath it that basically talks about how intelligent they are hmm. right and let's say they're a quarterback it'll say about, about how intelligent of a quarterback they are the other group will see a photo of a black athlete, but the exact same paragraph about intelligence. And so, to put this quite simply, right, then you ask them to rate the person on intelligence. And you would think that our groups would rate them as the same intelligence. But that's not what happens, right? So, consistently, every single experiment we've run, people rate the white athlete as higher in intelligence than the black athlete, even though they have no information besides what we've given them. And again, we can look at this in a lot of different ways, and we've done it, and, you know, we've changed the race of participants. We've done a lot of different things, but it always turns out the same.
0: You're saying that when you have white participants and black participants looking at these images, those two groups come to the same conclusions?
6: Yeah, it's actually a little bit different. You know, when we've done one experiment where we basically only sampled black participants... And we found that black participants actually stereotyped even stronger. So they found white athletes even more intelligent. And that's the real insidious kind of effect, right? That's what we call the spiral of stereotyping. If you're a group that's constantly stereotyped, you actually start to believe it
0: more than others do. So so basically what you're saying is this is part of our culture day in and day out. Like we're watching these games. We're hearing these broadcasters. We're... We're internalizing these stereotypes and it it trickles down to other aspects of our lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And
6: I think the, the best way to, to think about it is that to acknowledge that there are stereotypes about everything, right? Literally everything. That's how our brain works. That's how we come you know, most things that happen in our brain happen in like milliseconds, right? We make these decisions, and that's because we're using cues to come up with what we think something is, right? We hear a sound, we we, we hear, um, we're watching a movie and there's some ominous music in the background. Immediately we know something bad's gonna happen, right? Those are the things that happen in our brain all the time. So the more we pay attention to everything and don't just let things go into the background and just go with the flow, the more knowledge we're going to gain. But the key I think is that change And betterment in these kind of areas, it just doesn't happen, right? It it takes effort from people. And unless there's that effort, it's your your brain's just going to make quick decisions based on what you already know, and you're not going to learn anything new.
0: That's Pat Ferrucci. He's a professor of journalism at the University of Colorado. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about confronting racism. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the Ted Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, for example, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. It's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. The new Surface Pro 6 from Microsoft. Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about, and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required, Capital One Bank, USA NA.
6: Planet Money tip number 17. Sometimes, life is exactly like the movies. T-minus
3: 30 seconds. They said D minus They said
6: D minus Planet Money, a podcast about the economy and sometimes about rocket ships.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about confronting racism. And so far on the show... We've been hearing about the effects of systemic racism. But what about the ways that racial bias can affect our daily interactions?
3: Which is what happens in the interpersonal level, where people are face-to-face with each other daily and have to interact and make decisions daily.
0: This is clinical psychologist Howard Stevenson. And Howard says oftentimes it's in these encounters when our unconscious and even conscious biases can affect how we react
3: racial moments arise and they are caught in a place of anxiety and stress about what best to do, it, it hampers the decision-making of folks in those moments. Howard Stevenson talks more about these moments from the TED stage. If you look at the neuroscience research, which says that when we are racially threatened, our brains go on lockdown and we dehumanize black and brown people. Our brains imagine that children and adults are older than they really are, larger than they really are, and closer than they really are. When we're at our worst, we convince ourselves that they don't deserve affection or protection. If you look at the police encounters that have led to some wrongful deaths of mostly Native Americans and African Americans in this country, they've lasted about two minutes. Within 60 seconds, our brains go on lockdown, and when we're unprepared, we overreact. At best, we shut down. At worst, we shoot first and ask no questions. Imagine if we could reduce the intensity of threat within those 60 seconds and keep our brains from going on lockdown. Imagine how many children would get to come home from school without getting expelled or shot. Imagine how many mothers and fathers wouldn't have to cry. Racial socialization can help young people negotiate 60-second encounters, but it's going to take more than a chat. It requires a racial literacy. Now, how do parents have these conversations? And uh, what is a racial literacy? Thank you for asking. (laughs) A racial literacy involves the ability to read, recast and resolve a racially stressful encounter. Now, racially literate conversations with our children can be healing, but it takes practice.
0: You had a moment that you shared on stage um when when you and your youngest son Julian found out that George Zimmerman was acquitted after he killed trayvon martin
3: mm-hmm.
0: um and you and Julian talk about how he how Julian could have been perceived the same way as trayvon sure what what was that conversation like
3: what did what did Julian say at that time he felt very strongly it's not fair, and um he got angry about it what oh. the yeah, that he might also well. be targeted. Yeah, It's
0: like you're better
5: than you
3: and
0: yes. there's nothing you can do about that. And if you scare me or something like that, I will shoot you because I'm
3: scared of you. But I think he also... I also want him to know, um, which I think he got, that we're going to try to be around him, but that he also has to make decisions. It's a, It's one of those tricky you know, stressful things that, that parents of kids of color, in my view, have to deal with. Both Brian and Julie and my two sons, I gave them the talks at eight years old, just happened to come up that way. Right. I did the same thing with Brian. I gave him the same talk. We Once he stalking. got the information, he said, wait a minute, you know. You're telling me that he this guy the right can just chase a, a black, black kid.
0: kid. Get in a fight with him and shoot him?
3: Basically, and nothing happened. That's not right. If, if it's not the same you, for
0: everyone else. It's, it's not, not always
3: this. the same, no. You yeah, gotta because be careful. people
0: can disrespect you.
3: Exactly. And, uh, um,
0: I think that you're... It's like they're saying that you don't look right, so I guess I have the right to disrespect you.
3: Yeah, things like this happen way too often to our children. Well, anyway, you got time. You got to get ready for your shower. Let's go.
0: I, I'm, you know, I think most people, and and probably most white Americans, um, they think of a, a racist as like a torch carrying Charlottesville protester, like someone in a in a white hood. Sure. But I mean, so many of us carry elements of racism carry Mm -hmm. elements of bias and bigotry in in the decisions that we make consciously or unconsciously
3: that feed into a bigger phenomenon. I do think for so many people to be thought of as a racist is such an affront to their character. It feels like, you know that you'll, you'll get a mark on you for the rest of your life, right? So if you're a racist, you don't have good character, right? We don't do that for other issues. We don't really hire algebra teachers because they have good character. They have to have skills in counting. Your mm. character yeah. is interesting, but it's secondary. We know you could be the best, nicest, goodest person in the world, but we're not going to hire you as an algebra teacher in the school district if you can't count. And so why do we accept that people are good at dealing with race because they have good character. Where we've never challenged them on their ability to navigate racial conflict. Like what's your skill set? Where have you practiced? Mm. Where have you studied? You know, what's your knowledge about racial threat in the moment? I don't think anybody would say this would this is easy. Like
0: re examining the way we think about race, re examining our narrative. All these things are difficult. They require real work. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that there still is this feeling. People say, I'm tired of diversity training. I'm tired of these conversations enough already. Mm-hmm. And I I wonder whether there's another way to frame it, you know, to people who say enough. I don't want to talk about this
3: anymore to say, but let me explain why this is good for you, too. Um. I think if people are open, yes. I think it's more show me than tell me. Mm. And that's where I think about, you know, the arguments of what if your child is affected by not knowing about these racial issues? You know, can you imagine that? The trauma and the history of racism affects all of us. You know, a colleague of mine, Dr. Robin Smith and I were teaching some pastors at a seminary, in Southern Baptist Seminary, and one day we were teaching about lynching and I showed a picture of a lynching with two children in the picture. And one of the ministers in the, in the class started crying uncontrollably. And we stopped the class. We asked him what's going on. He said, I was a child at a lynching. He's a white Southern Baptist minister out of Tennessee. And in the process, he said, you know, I was told not to talk about it. And I literally could not stop crying. Once you circled those two children on the screen, I, I lost it. First, we said, thank you for sharing that with us. But we also asked him, to there anything else has triggered you? And he said, yes, because now in my church, which has been predominantly white, the neighborhood is integrating, and I have African-American parishioners coming to my church. And now I have had nightmares ever since about whether I can be a pastor to them or not. The trauma of racism, the emotional trauma of the legacy of lynching, has affected all of us and i'm saying that if you want to really heal about this stuff you got to see it connected you know and living with the benefits of enslavement do not absolve people of the pain and trauma and i think all of us have lots of moments like that wish we had do-overs right but it affects our health it affects his sleep habits it affects his relationships it affects the anxiety that he was going through every day. And so we've been making the pitch, you know, to deal with this stuff. is not just simply about being a better society, not simply about being a good person, but what if not dealing with racial matters affects your health? Would you be interested? Or affects your children's health? Would you then be interested? You know, if you knew your child was gonna lose sleep over their difference, or, or not knowing how to deal with this stuff over the course of 10 years, Would you be interested in engaging and talking about
0: it? Howard Stevenson is the director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative at the University of Pennsylvania. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So, Travis, as two white men sitting here talking about race, I want to ask you, what is it you think that many white people in America don't understand about what it means to be black in America? I don't think a lot of white people,
2: and I would include myself in everything that we're talking about, by the way, have any sense of the kind of racial trauma and the way that non-white people, especially you know black people, indigenous people in this country, carry around history with them in very deep ways. This is Travis Jones. I am an educator, a diversity inclusion consultant, and I am a writer when I can find time.
0: And Travis has spent a lot of time thinking and writing about white culture.
2: There's kind of these unspoken moral codes in whiteness. It should tell you something that in a room full of white people, if you have some view on, you know, let's say racism, but if you don't feel comfortable speaking up about that in that group, what does that say about your relation to those people in that group? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it say about the codes of whiteness that Define what it means to be a good white person, which usually means not speaking up about injustice or racism, because through a white racial perspective, those who speak about racism are the real racists. You know, being intentional about thinking about how our cultures shape us in certain ways, like the way Travis's own upbringing has shaped him. Come from a working class background in the South. Um, was. Born in upstate New York, but I've grown up in North Carolina. And I grew up in predominantly all-white schools, all-white churches. I've been socialized in uh, pretty stark white cultures, I would say.
0: And last year, Travis gave a TED Talk speaking directly to white people about race. I wanted to give a talk that
2: didn't feel preachy. That wasn't wrapped in a lot of academic jargon, but I really wanted to connect with working class white people who I do feel like there's some genuine feeling like they're being left out in the world or left behind or resentment. And so I I think was trying to connect with people like
0: me. Here's more from Travis Jones on the TED stage.
2: As
5: Southerners, we have an intimate relationship with the land, the dirt. In fact, when we want to talk about hard work, we even say things like, you've got to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty. And man, I wish we had that energy for working against white supremacy in the world. Because for a people that love meritocracies, we have not been pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps in racial justice work. Now, by now you might be thinking, well, just like a class, we aren't bullies and homeowners in the minority. What about the majority of white people? What about the rest of the class? And I'm sure the majority of the white people, you know, are diversity-loving, inclusive people who stand against racism. And decades of survey data show us that racial attitudes of whites have improved over the years. The problem is racist policies have largely stayed the same or in many cases gotten worse. Well, how'd we get here? During the civil rights era, white people saw ourselves in a mirror through the violent images we saw on the paper and on TV. We didn't like what we saw. So we distanced ourselves from those bad white people and created a culture where not seeing race became a way to be good in the world. And that's how we got the colorblind classroom. We show our goodness as non-racist by blaming white bullies, closing our eyes to race, or by shrinking in shame or silence to show our agreement with its badness. But eventually, I realized that my goodness made me feel good but it wasn't doing much for making the world good. And my goodness felt lifeless in the face of mass incarceration and the racial wealth gap, immigrant rights and police brutality. And it feels lifeless now when I see the way that whiteness is killing white people too. Through the opioid epidemic, suicide rates, and white poverty, you see the goodness of non-racism is no match for the badness of racism.
0: Why do you think it's important for whites, even for whites who might look at the world and say, I've lost out, like I didn't go to college, I don't have an education, I don't have a great job. Why, in your view, does it need to be addressed? Why would a white person, even someone who doesn't feel like they've reaped the fruits of of what America has to offer, why would it be important that they do understand what it means to be white versus what it means to be black in America?
2: Yeah. So I, you know, nobody has shaped my thinking on race more than James Baldwin. And I think at least one of the ways that made Baldwin so provocative is that he turned the mirror and essentially asked white people that question. I mean, he saw racism as a kind of poison and sickness of the soul. You know, when I see, for example, on, you know, maybe my Facebook or in conversations when white people are trying to do their best to have some voice in race conversations and it's not coming from a place of being informed or reflective, there's an anger there and there's kind of a spitefulness and there's shame and there's Mm. guilt. Like none of that strikes me as healthy. So I think in our race conversations, even paying attention to your emotions and, you know, maybe your lack of insight that that in and of itself, you know as some sign of some lack. And whereas I I think we should maybe change the narrative to embrace that to say historically white people have not been great advocates or allies. Instead of shrinking in shame from that or or kind of trying to explain that away to embrace it as, you know, here's one parts of our lives where we can explore how we've been shaped um, for better or worse and and try to get better. Yeah. So I think there's a personal draw, but also politically, I mean, I, I think if white people really got black politics fighting for, you know, police reform, prison abolition, criminal justice reform, those things, if they're framed through racial justice, they're good for white people too.
0: What are some small ways, and we're talking about some big ideas, but what are some just very small practical ways that mm-hmm. you would say that white people could work to either be allies to people of color or to kind of begin to address some of the deeper questions that we're talking about in this show? Mm -hmm. So I'm really
2: big on the importance of being self-reflective about who you are in the world and how you've been shaped, your deeper beliefs and values. When you read something on the news, you see something, you're in conversation, those things that really raise your emotional antennas to take those small moments and think about why. I mean, I think another way is in our families. I mean, think about the people in your life that you care about. And if you've had some awakenings to race in this country, could you share those truths with some people that you think should know them? You know, looking at parenting as an avenue to introduce new narratives to, you know, young people who, if we don't intervene and speak up, are gonna
0: be absorbed into the same kind of story of race in America that we were. That's Travis Jones. He's an anti-racism educator. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on Confronting Racism this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousie, Melissa Gray, and JC Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.